I just want to share a quick testimony. It's kind of, kind of a funny one uh, about tithing. The other day, and it's been a, several weeks ago, I, I got to wonder, my, my wife handles all our finances, and I unashamedly will tell you that. She does a great job, and she handles it. I go make the money, and she spends it. All right, it works out. Um, and uh, she handles knowing what's coming in, what's going out. I'm getting real personal with y'all tonight, but I just want y'all to just hear what the Lord gave to me. And I got to look, and I said, I wonder, I wonder what we tithe. I know Miss Candy, she handles it. She makes sure it's the right amount. And I don't know. I don't want to know because I am bad with money. I'll spend it as soon as I see it. So I said, I wonder what's going on with the bank account. So I'll pull it up on my phone. You can see your bank statement on your cell phone now. And I'm scrolling through there. And I'm, good Lord, this is why we're so blessed. And I, call, I said, Candy, do you realize we're tithing 90% of our income? She said, what are you talking about? We don't, I said, 90%. She said, what in the world are you talking about? I said, Chick-fil-A, 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 Chick-fil-A. I said, that's the Lord's chicken. I said, Every bit of our money goes right, right, right back in his pocket. This must be why we're so blessed. All right. So if you're wondering how to get your tithe up, Chick-fil-A, Chick-fil-A, Chick-fil-A. It's all going back to him anyways. Amen. I thought you'd like that. Uh, she didn't think that was too funny at first, but now she's come to realize that's about 90% of my income goes right into the chicken. Amen. Amen. As you can tell. All right. Uh, the Dunlops were going to sing tonight, but they've got held up in their travels. So um, be in prayer for them. They're on the road in evangelism. Uh, so I'm going to sing tonight. And I had the page open, but now somebody's closed the book. Somebody, somebody must have been over there and closed the book. It's probably me. Amen. We got it. All right. Uh, this song, I heard this saying for the first time when we were in Silverdale Prison. Um, and... We were in a, a very deep part of the prison, some of the worst of the worst, and uh, a preacher got up, and he had his guitar with him, and he sang this song, and uh, I just remember watching in awe of all these men that were rejoicing, they were worshiping, even though they were convicted, they were serving time, they were in this prison, uh, they were worshiping because they remembered that time that the Lord saved them, and I just remember going back out through the security gates and saying, you know, wow, you know, God saved that murderer and God saved that, uh, that person and that person and that person. And I got back out to the waiting area uh, and there my wife was and she was under conviction and she shared with one of the preacher wives, uh, Miss Peggy Ellis, that she was under conviction. And right there, that's where my wife, Miss Candy, got saved, right there in Silverdale Prison. And I just remember of how my, God blew my mind of saying, you know, we think those old wicked sinners are the ones in the prison, and we're, you know, we're impressed that God saves them. And there, he, I walk out, and there he had just saved my little wife that I thought hung the moon. You know, but God knows your heart. God knows your heart. And he knows who's lost, and he knows who's real, and he knows who's a child of his. So if you're one of his children tonight, I hope this song's a blessing to you. And if you're not, know he can save you. He can save anybody. <clears throat> The drunk on the street, the rich in the palaces, the poor and unlearned, and the man of degree, they all have a soul in need of salvation. And they all have to come by Calvary. 
And I am so glad God saves old sinners. I'm thrilled and amazed that he sets them free. But the biggest surprise in redeeming old sinners is that he would save an old sinner like me. Oh, was I so bad that I needed forgiveness? Or was I so wrong that I had to be redeemed? Oh, I wasn't a thief. Oh, but I lived in sin's prison. And I was as lost as a sinner could be. Oh, I was as lost as a sinner could be. And that's why I'm so glad God saves old sinners. And I'm thrilled and amazed that He sets them free. But the biggest surprise in redeeming old sinners is that He would save an old sinner like me. Oh, that He would save an old sinner like me. Amen. All right, Brother Jacob. Yep, you're already on it. You got this one on now. Amen. Acts chapter 25 tonight. Acts chapter 25. Can you believe we have made it 25 chapters in the book of Acts? 25 chapters. Week by week, line by line. Amen. And it is about as fast as you could go through it. Um, but... I felt the Lord leading in the area of just wanting to understand the big picture. Brother Dan touched on it very well this morning when he'd said it was a transitional book from the Gospels to the epistles and how it was so important to understand what everything and every uh, piece of the book of Acts was a piece and a building block of the foundation of the churches you and I call home today. Um, and we've been looking at the last few weeks at the final persecution there of Paul and uh, we've kind of developed a mini-series within the study of Book of Acts, and I'm calling it Christianity on Trial. Uh, the trial started with Paul simply saying, I'm guilty as charged. I'm guilty of being a nobody. I'm guilty of knowing somebody, and I'm guilty of trying to tell everybody. And then we looked the week following, and uh, we found God having a conversation with Paul and telling him it's going to hurt. It's going to hurt, Paul. This is not going to be fun. And uh, then the next week, we talked in the third part of the trial, we talked about what they call heresy, I call worship. And tonight, we're going to look at the fourth message in this little mini-series of Christianity on Trial. And we're going to begin reading when you find Acts chapter 25 and verse number 13. Would you stand in honor and reverence to the reading of His Word? Acts 25 and verse number 13. <clears throat> and after certain days, King Agrippa and Bernice came unto Caesarea to salute Festus. 
And when they had been there many days, Festus declared Paul's cause unto the king, saying, There is a certain man left in bonds by Felix, about whom when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders and the Jews informed me, desiring to have judgment against him. To whom I answered, It is not the manner of the Romans to deliver any man to die, before that he which is accused have the accusers face to face, and have license to answer for himself concerning the crime laid against him. Therefore, when they were come hither without any delay on the morrow, I sat on the judgment seat and commanded the man to be brought forth, against whom, when the accusers stood up, they brought none accusation of such things as I supposed, but had certain questions against him of their own superstition, and of one Jesus, which was dead, whom Paul affirmed to be alive. And because I doubted of such manner of questions, I asked him whether he would go to Jerusalem and be judged of these matters. But when Paul had appealed to be reserved under the hearing of Augustus, I commanded to be him to be kept till I might send him to Caesar. I want all your eyes to go back up to verse number 16 and look at those words. Uh, it is not the manner of Romans to deliver any man to die before he that which is accused have the accusers face to face and have license to answer for himself the crime laid against him. Tonight I want to preach on this thought face to face with the truth. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the Apostle Paul. Thank you so much for the life he lived and the testimony he had, even in these dark days, even in these days where he was being persecuted the hardest. Father, I pray and I thank you for your word that that's all we've needed to stand on in these days, that that's all we've needed to carry on was your simple, blessed book. Father, thank you for your family. Thank you for your children. Thank you that we've gathered to this place tonight. God, I pray that you feed your sheep tonight, that you deal with each and every heart. God, if there's one in here who's saved but just is not understanding their current circumstances, God, I pray that you give them some truth tonight, that you give them exactly what they need. And God, I pray even harder. If there's one in here that's lost, Father, help them not to look at me. Help them not to look at the building. Help them not to look at a religion. But God, help them to seek after a relationship and seek after a Savior that will save them and grant them eternal life. Father, I pray that your will be done in the service. And I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. Amen. So I know we've skipped a week here. Last Sunday, uh, a, I was out with a back injury, but also it was Youth Sunday. It was the fifth Sunday in August, and I had asked Brother Kenneth to preach, and heard he did a fantastic job. Y'all be in prayer for Brother Kenneth. As you know, his dad, Wayne, uh, a few months ago, uh, tested positive for COVID-19, so he had to be quarantined, and they you know, did all that good stuff. And uh, then Brother Wayne made a recovery, and he was perfectly fine and got tested positive. So Brother Kenneth kind of got it come out of the hole a little bit, and he went and he got his driver's license. And uh, he, he had turned 16 and went and got, took his test and got his driver's license. And uh, he called me at work and was, you know, just overjoyed. And then I get another call about 30 minutes later from his dad saying Kenneth had had lunch with somebody at the school and they tested positive for COVID. So COVID was going to have to go or Kenneth was going to have to go back into quarantine uh, for another 14 days. So you imagine 16 year old boy, you get your driver's license, first taste of freedom, got a car. And then you go, all right, now go to your room for 14 days, son. So, uh, <laughs> And all the boys trying to do is serve God and preach and, you know, and do the right thing. So be in prayer for Brother Kenneth. Uh, shoot him a card through his dad, through his mom. And Kenneth Brogan has a cell phone now. So if you'd like his cell phone number, uh, I can give that to you. And uh, we can uh, just send him some well wishes. He, like I said, he's okay. He's just being safe and quarantining. So um, be in prayer for him. But I was out last week. So where we left Paul was 
at that judgment seat in chapter 24 by, <clears throat> by Felix. And now we understand that he's being tried and being uh, procured by a man named Festus. So I want to kind of explain what's happened here. Uh, and what we're beginning to realize is Paul's trial, Paul's uh, persecution is gaining more and more publicity. More and more people of stature are getting involved, which is exactly what the Jews don't want. They wanted him dead. They wanted him executed. They wanted to handle it back in Jerusalem. But now every time Paul opens his mouth, every time the Holy Spirit of God gets involved in Paul's mission and Paul's ministry, things just keep getting bigger. The influence keeps getting bigger and more and more lights are being shown to the gospel and the message of Paul here. And <clears throat> what we've found is at the end of chapter number 24, Felix didn't know what to do the governor there in Rome. He couldn't find a reason to kill Paul, but at the same time, he didn't want to upset the Jews. So Felix left Paul in prison for the span uh, of two years back in chapter number 24 uh, and then uh, left him there to rot, essentially. And he was trying to bank on the fact that somebody would, 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 would try to bribe him. And the Bible speaks that he was literally putting Paul in prison kind to see who had the highest bidder was. And if Paul would try to bribe himself out, or if the Jews would try to bribe them, you know, bribe him to get him executed or whatever. But uh, circumstances quickly changed over that span of two years. As Paul was in prison, we know through Roman history that uh, it was almost like a, uh, a, a power shift. And uh, a, new, a new sheriff was in town and a new man became in charge. And his name was Festus. And now Festus takes the position of Felix. And we're going to kind of pick up there and kind of understand what's going on in chapter 25 and verse number 1. The first thing I want you to understand uh, about this is Festus is coming into a new province. He is unaware of what happened back with Felix. He's unaware of the trials and the conversations that have been had. And I want to kind of help you to understand that when Festus getting is getting here. He's kind of unaware of Paul's situation. He doesn't know who Paul is. He doesn't know why the Jews are mad. So that's where we're at in verse number one. The Bible says, 25 verse one, now when Festus was coming to the province, after three days, he ascended from Caesarea to Jerusalem. Now here we go. First thing we're going to notice is unwavering barbarity. Then the high priest and the chief Jews informed him against Paul and besought him in desired favor against him that he would send for him to Jerusalem, laying in wait to kill him. Notice the barbarity here of the Jews. It had been three days since Festus had been in charge, and now we see the chief priest sending word, sending letter to the new sheriff, to the new governor, to the new uh, guy that's in charge. And the first thing, they, the first order of business, they, they send word to him. It would have been through letter or through messenger that, hey, Mr. Festus, we know you're in charge now. We understand that you're the new sheriff in town. You're the new governor. Uh, you're the head honcho. There's something we got to tell you. There's this guy, Paul. You'll find him in your prison, and we want him brought back to Jerusalem. It's not something you need to worry about Mr. Festus. It's not something you need to be concerned with. You've got a prisoner there and you know we were trying to tell old Felix but he just wouldn't listen. So if you could just be so kind to just send him back to Jerusalem. That's what we're having here. Now what were the Jews trying to do? They're trying to pull the wool over the eyes of Mr. Festus here and they're saying to just send him back to Jerusalem and we'll take care of this and you won't even have to worry about it. And it literally gives us in verse 3 for the only purpose so that they could wait and kill him. They wanted Paul dead. The barbarity here, they saw this opportunity to try to pull the snow over this man's eyes. But we know uh, that that's not what happened. If you look at verse number four, but Festus answered that Paul should be kept at Caesarea. Essentially, he said he will go nowhere, kept at Caesarea, and that he himself would depart shortly thither. 
Let them therefore, said he, which among you are able to go down with me and accuse this man. He said, no, no, we're not, I'm not going to send him to Jerusalem. I'm not going to just do what you tell me to do. Now, keep in mind the attitude of Festus here. He's the new sheriff in town. He's got to kind of show his worth and he's going to kind of show his salt to these Jews and make sure that he, they know that he, they're not going to be able to push him around. And he's saying, hey, you, you know, I understand your frustrations with this Paul guy, but we're going to do this right. And if you want to come and meet me, we'll hear the accusations and we'll go through a trial. So that unwavering barbarity that those Jews had, they, they were not about to let Paul get, get off scot-free. They wanted to make sure that the new sheriff in town knew what was going on. But then we're going to see unending bureaucracy. Look at verse number six. <clears throat> and when he had tarried among them more than 10 days, he went down to Caesarea and the next day, sitting on the judgment seat commanded Paul to be brought. So here we go. And when he was come, the Jews which came down from Jerusalem stood round about and laid many grievous complaints against Paul, which they could not prove. While he answered for himself, neither against the law of the Jews, neither against the temple, nor yet against Caesar, have I offended anything at all. But Festus, look at this, willing to do the Jews a pleasure answered Paul and said, Wilt thou go up to Jerusalem and there be judged of these things before me? Notice what's going on here. The bureaucracy and the bogged down system that they find them in. It's so familiar to our day and age today. Here you have a trial. Here you have an examination where the Jews are throwing accusation after accusation after accusation. They're attacking Paul. They're trying to complain against Paul. They're trying to prove that he's done something wrong so that they can execute him. So that they, and, and keep in mind here, they're not asking for an arrest. They're not asking for criminal charges. That, that's already happened. They want Paul to die. And here we have such uh, barbarism, such chaos, such uh, just bureaucracy that these men can't know their head from their tails. They're not able to reach a verdict and they're trying to cloud the waters again and muddy the waters again. And here, look, look at the significance that but Festus, who is who? The Roman governor. He's the one in charge. Willing to do the Jews a pleasure, looks at Paul, answered Paul and said, now look what's happening here. The man in charge is asking the man on trial what to do. Look at how crazy this is. The man in charge looks at Paul, answered Paul and said, wilt thou go to Jerusalem and there be judged of these things before me? Things had gotten so bogged down by this bureaucracy and these accusations and this complete waste of time that the man in charge is now asking the man of God to make the decision. Paul, what do you think we should do? Paul, will you just go down to Jerusalem to make these guys happy? Notice the sides that are shifting here. No doubt the Jews are sitting there enraged and inflamed. What are you doing asking him what he wants to do? He shouldn't get a voice, but the voice of God will never be silenced. The man of God will never be silenced. Here you have a Roman dictator, a Roman uh, governor looking at a man accused of blasphemy, accused of all these things, and he's looking at him going, Paul, will you make the decision for me? Look at the bureaucracy. They can't even figure out their heads from their tails. They don't know their left from their right. And here stands Paul, and now the, the ball is put right back in his court. So we saw unwavering barbarity, unending bureaucracy, but now look at the undying boldness. Then said Paul, essentially what he said in Southern vernacular, I'm done with this. Look at verse 10. Then said Paul, I stand at Caesar's judgment seat where I ought to be judged. To the Jews have I done no wrong, as thou very well knowest. For if I be an offender, 
or have committed anything worthy of death, I refuse not to die. But if there be none of these things whereof these accuse me, no man may deliver me unto them. I appeal unto Caesar. Then Festus, when he conferred with the council, answered, Hast thou appealed unto Caesar? Unto Caesar shalt thou go. Caesar? Paul, are you serious? The, the literal king of the world at that time, the most powerful ears in the world were now about to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. The most powerful man on planet earth at that time, Paul demands an audience with him. And this Roman governor, no doubt, was taken back. You want to talk to, to... He didn't just go to his boss. He didn't just go to his boss's boss. He didn't just go up to the regional level or up the corporate chain. No, he, Paul wanted to go straight to the king. Paul wanted to go straight to the emperor. Paul wanted to go straight to the head honcho. And he said, I demand and I ought to be judged before Caesar, the emperor. So look at the stakes Paul has just raised through this little bureaucracy that the Jews tried to ruffle up. Now the thing they're trying to snuff out, the thing they're trying to squash, the story they're trying to you know, eradicate and kill Paul off is now about to go before the emperor of the Roman Empire. Think about what's happened now. Think about the gravity of what's just taking place. When they heard... Festus, make the statement, unto Caesar shalt thou go. You could imagine the opposition, how deflated they were to understand that this man that had been preaching Jesus was now about to go preach Jesus to the king in the world, to the emperor over all the Roman Empire. How bold must have Paul have been to demand an audience with a man who all he had to do was speak and entire nations could be enslaved. All he had to do was speak and entire nations could be wiped out by the Roman armies. This was the man Paul demanded an audience with. And <clears throat> next we'll notice unfinished business. Look at verse number 13. This is where our text comes in. And after certain days, King Agrippa and Bernice. So this is Festus's boss, King Agrippa. Uh, and Bernice, who is Agrippa's sister, come into Caesarea to salute Festus. <clears throat> and no doubt to congratulate him on, hey, you know, how you doing? You've been given charge of this new territory. You've been given charge of Judea. You've been given charge of Jerusalem and these, uh, the Jewry. And I know that there are peculiar people. There are set-aside people. But, you know, how's it going, Festus? What, you know, what, what's... And <laughs> you can imagine Festus here. He's being greeted by his bosses. He's being greeted by King Agrippa. And King Agrippa probably asked the question, so how's it going so far? Or, you know, how, how's, you know, being the governor of this area? You know, you were over there before, but now you're here. If you've ever been in these regional moves and maybe a regional management position or something. That's what's happening here. He's going, hey, Festus, how's it going? This is a new territory. And Festus looked at him and said, boy, do I got a story for you. Look at verse number 14. And when they had been there many days, Festus declared Paul's cause unto the king, saying, there is a certain man left in bonds by Felix. He said, you're not going to believe the mess Felix left me to clean up. You're not going to believe the unfinished business that I've got to now figure out. King Agrippa says, tell me more, tell me more, Festus, what's going on? About whom, when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews informed me, desiring to have judgment against him. To whom I answered, and this is our key verse, it is not the manner of Romans to deliver a man to die. Now that word die there is the Greek word that we get the word perdition, damnation, eternal annihilation from. And what I want you to understand here is that Festus knew, when he was telling Agrippa, Festus knew that the Jews 
wanted this man completely and totally, absolutely gone. They wanted his message silenced. They wanted him debunked. They wanted him completely and totally uh, off the scene. And he's looking at his king and he's saying, but it's not the manner of Romans. It's not what we do to completely eradicate a man until we've found the truth, until we've looked at the case and we've allowed the accusers and the accused to understand that they are face to face and that we are going to get to the bottom of this. Festus was looking for exactly what we're looking for. Festus was desiring exactly what the world is desiring in 2020. Festus wanted to know the truth. Festus wanted to know if the Jews were right and Paul was crazy and Paul was out of his mind or Festus wanted to know if the Jews were crazy or if the Jews were mad and he wanted to know if Paul was in the right. And what I want to tell you is that Festus was after something that is so big, that is so big yet so attacked. And I wonder how many of us are defending it. This thing of the truth. This thing of the truth. If somebody asked you, do you know anything that is true? And what makes something true is that it's true regardless of what we think about it. Something that's true regardless of what we say about it. Something that's true regardless of what we think about it. Something that's true regardless of how we act on it. Something like gravity. No matter what we do, no matter how we act, no matter what our opinion is on gravity, if what goes up must come down. There's nothing we can do to change it. The truth, the law of gravity is something that we can do nothing about. And here Festus realized that what they were after was something that profound. If Jesus is who he said he was, and if Jesus, that this Paul is, de is declaring, if, if the gospel is true, then it changes everything. If the gospel is true, then it changes my whole life. It changes your whole life. And he was telling King Agrippa, this thing is bigger than you and me. This thing is huge. And, and I'm asking Mr. Agrippa, I'm asking boss man, how in the world are we going to find, we've got to get these people face to face and we've got to come to know the truth. So tonight I want to preach on that thought face to face with the truth. Number one, the truth in of itself is judged aggressively. Look at verse number 15. Back up at verse number 15. About whom when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews informed me, desiring to have judgment against him. It was an instigated judgment. Jesus never had to go pick a fight, did he? The fight always came to him, didn't it? Peter, even though as bad as he wanted to, he never had to go pick a fight, did he? The fight always came to him. Paul didn't have to go pick a fight. All he had to do was simply walk into Jerusalem, and here he finds himself in the fight of his life. The judgment against the truth, the opposition against the truth is something that you and I as Christians will never have to ask for. We will never have to ask the devil to tempt us. We will never have to ask the devil to attack us. We will never have to ask the world to despise us. We will never have to ask the lost to reject us. We will never have to ask for the fight. We will never have to ask for the judgment. It is something that is instigated by the prince of this world, the devil. It is something that the liar himself, the devil himself, births out of the pits of hell on a daily basis. He's trying to come up with ways. He's trying to come up with techniques. He's trying to come up with vices and strongholds to attack you and attack me. And it's something that we have to do nothing to instigate. He's coming with everything he's got every single day. And the truth of the matter is, is that it, the truth of itself is going to be attacked. We should not be surprised about that. We should not be surprised that 
it's something that we can go into any public school in our area and we can learn about Muhammad. We can learn about Buddha. We can learn about uh, <coughs> all these other religious figures. We can learn about all these other religions. We can learn about Catholicism. We can learn about, uh, <coughs> you name it, Scientology, this, that, or the other. We can learn about atheism. We can learn about agnosticism. We can learn about, and that's perfectly okay, but you take the name of Jesus into any one of these schools, you will be ridiculed. There will be riot. There will be people mad at you, despising you, wanting to fight with you wanting to all because you're coming to a place and telling people that there's a God in heaven who loves them. It's an instigated judgment. It's something that simply because the truth exists, the opposition is against it. You want to know what's true, find the thing the devil is attacking the most. You want to know what's true, Somebody said something like this. Every time they come out with a, a medicine or a drug that actually works, the FDA takes it off the market because they're not able to make as much money. They're not able to... Anytime something that actually works, that can help people, that can, can take it off the market, there's a reason that the devil of this world has allowed billions and billions and billions of dollars to be spent and there's still no cure for cancer. There's a reason why the devil of this world has allowed billions and billions and billions of dollars to be spent and there's no cure for Alzheimer's and diabetes and all these issues and illnesses. There's a reason that the opposition is so strong against the things which we desire the most. The things that work, the things that are true, those will be the things that the devil devil attacks the most. And here we find Festus looking at this going, he's just one man. He's just a preacher. And we have an entire race of people, the Jews, that want him dead, that want him gone. How much could he affect them? What damage could he do to them? He's locked in a cell. But it's not only an instigated judgment, but it's an intense judgment. Death. Death. That is the only thing that would suffice those Jews. That was the only thing that would suffice in the case of Jesus. They couldn't just tell Jesus to take a hike and go somewhere else. No, the devil doesn't stop at anything short of death. Do you know what he wants to do to your testimony? He wants to kill it. He doesn't want to harm it. He doesn't want to hurt it. He doesn't want to bother it. He wants it dead. He wants it completely unusable. He wants you to mess up so bad that there's no way anybody in your area, anybody in your family would ever listen to you again. He wants to kill your testimony. He can't kill you. He can't take your eternal life away from you. He can't take anything God has given you away because that came from God and nothing can snatch that out of God's hand. But what he can do is absolutely, totally wreck and ruin your testimony, wreck and ruin your family's testimony, wreck and ruin your relationship testimony with you and your wife, you and your husband, you and your kids, and kill something that is true. That's what he's after. The devil wants no less than death. That's the truth. It's an intense judgment, but it's an individual judgment. See, Festus is looking and going, it's just one man. It's just one man. And if Paul would have bought into the lie that a lot of us buy into, thinking that we're just one person, and we're just one man, and we're just one woman, that can get real depressing real fast. 
It can get real bothersome real fast to think that you're the only one standing for God. You're the only one praying. You're the only one reading your Bible. See, that's what the devil wants you to think. That's what he wanted Paul to think. That's what those Jews wanted Paul to think. They wanted Paul to think, look, at, look Paul, all of us are right and just little old you wrong. Little old you aren't going to make a difference. Little old you ain't going to. But now little old Paul, little old preacher man, little old man that got despised, got beat up, got stoned is now to go, about to go stand before the literal king of the world at that time. The emperor of Rome, Emperor Augustus, Caesar Augustus. And he was literally about to go proclaim the truth, the message of the gospel. Why? Because Paul knew what he was doing. Paul knew what he was suffering. Paul knew the truth was bigger than him. And it wasn't him. A lot of us, we shy away from that judgment. We shy away from that instigating and that intenseness because we think we're all, we think we're I instead of we. We think we're I instead of we. We forget that there's Christians all over this world that'll stand right beside you. We forget that the Holy Ghost of God will comfort you and stand right where you're standing. Brother Jim says, in every one of his testimonies, and I'm glad he says it in every one of his testimonies, he will never leave us nor forsake us. Never. When God says never, you know what that means back in the Hebrew in the Old Testament? Never. They are getting good. Never. Paul knew that. And now, though the judgment was intense, no, the judgment was aggressive, he kept marching forward. The truth is judged aggressively. But look at verse number 19. Mr. Agrippa, we've got to get these guys face to face. We've got to come face to face with the truth. We've got to discover what is true. Look at verse number 19. But had certain questions again of their own superstition. And Mr. Agrippa, they're asking about somebody named Jesus, which was dead. Well, we killed that guy, didn't we? Which was dead, whom Paul affirmed to be alive. To be alive. Well, guess what point number two is? Point number one was the truth in and of itself is judged aggressively. But number two, the truth is Jesus is alive. The truth is Jesus is alive. Mr. Agrippa, if this is true, if the most powerful empire the world has ever known killed this man and he's alive, everything changes. Everything's going to be different. If it's true that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, then nothing else in this world matters. If it's true that his message was vindicated by his resurrection, that he is who he said he was, that he is the I am, that he is the King of kings, that he is the Lord of lords, that he is the Messiah, that he is the one that can save you from your sins, that he is the one that can come into your little life and change it forever and give you the gift of eternal life simply by faith and trust in his gospel. If, he, if that is true... Everything's different. Nothing else matters if that's true. You know what Paul was, sir, the, the, the truth is, yeah, he's, he's alive. He's alive. He's alive physically. I love that song. I don't know what it's called, but I've heard it sung several times. You can go to the tomb of Muhammad. You can go see dead Buddha and all the Buddhas after him. You can go to the Vatican and see shrines to every pope that's ever lived. You can go anywhere you want to go. And any of, the, in any of these other little G gods, you can find a body. You can find a casket. You can find just a man, just a woman. But you go to a tomb. You go to a tomb. 
that was never his to begin with. That was borrowed. You go to a tomb and you know what you'll find? Absolutely nothing. There's nobody there. There's nobody, literally nobody there. There's no human being remains there. There's no skeleton there. There's no skeleton in the Middle East. There's no skeleton in the entire globe. They've searched and they've searched and philosophers and <clears throat> archaeological digs have been constructed that said if the apostles stole his body, they would have buried it here. If the apostles stole his body, they would have buried it there. And many scientists and many explorers have went and tried to find the body of Jesus. The entire a Roman Empire at that time realized the mistake they made and they're wondering, we are the most powerful empire in the world and if we didn't kill this guy, if we let these guys steal this body, we've got big trouble. They couldn't find it. The most powerful world empire at the time, they couldn't find Jesus' body. They couldn't find his physical uh, being anymore and yet we know that there was 40, witness, or 40 days where many witnesses and many people saw them walking and talking and teaching and preaching long after that third morning, long after he arose, long after that they had laid him in that grave and laid him in that borrowed tomb and he taught and he, and he met with those disciples and he met with those people and he told them and he gave them promises. He gave us scripture. He is alive physically. He's not there. They can't find him physically. They've been looking. They've been looking. And as Brother Dan said this morning, every archaeological find that they find in the Middle East backs up scripture. They, they've yet to find, they've had 2,020 years to find something, dig up something that would refute, that would dispel the tale of Jesus. You know what, they haven't, they haven't found it. They're never gonna find it. Why? Because he's alive physically. It's not a fairy tale. It's not just words on a page. Thousands and thousands of men have tried to prove it wrong and they can't and they won't. He's alive physically. He's alive powerfully. We live because he lives. That's why we sang it this morning. Because he lives. The truth is, because he lives, we can face tomorrow. Because he lives. That's it. That is powerful enough to be enough. The simple fact that we don't serve a dead or a boring God is enough. He's alive physically, powerfully, powerfully, and he's alive paternally. He's not just on the throne. He's in your heart. He's not just on the throne. He's in your heart. Is he? Is he? Because if it's true that he's alive physically, and if it's true that he's alive powerfully and he's ascended on high and seated at the right hand of God, then it also must be true that he said, I will send a comforter unto you. And God, the Holy Spirit, will indwell you. He's alive. You ask me how. I know he lives. He lives within my heart. How do you know he's alive? I walk with him and talk with him a long life's dreadful way. How do you know he's alive? Describe him to me. Oh, he's undescribable. Describe him to me. What's he look like? He's, he's undescribable. He's alive. The truth is he's alive. The truth in and of itself is judged aggressively. The truth is Jesus is alive. And lastly, the truth 
is justice is approaching. Look at verse 21. But when Paul had appealed to be reserved unto the hearing of Augustus, I commanded to be, him to be kept that I might send him to be Caesar. If you look at that word, unto the hearing of Augustus, that word hearing is translated as diagnosis, to get to the root of the matter. Festus is looking at a grip and he said, the truth will be found. The emperor who the Romans worshiped as their little God, little G God, is going to diagnose the truth of this matter. And if what Paul says is true, then there's going to be justice for us. There's going to be justice placed on the Romans. Justice will be served. Every knee will bow. Every tongue shall confess. Sir, ma'am, your knee will bow. It's up to just to you which dispensation it's going to be in. Your knee will bow. It's just up to you which dispensation it's going to be in. Will it be in the dispensation of grace, freely accepting God's gift of salvation? Or will it be in the dispensation of God's wrath in the great tribulation or at the white, great white throne judgment? When will your knee bow? Justice will be served. Justice will be swift. Your time is not known. There will be no time to strike up a bargain. There will be no time to make a deal, to make a plea. The Bible says in Luke 16 that the rich man died and in hell he lift up his eyes. There's no space. There's no manner of time. There's no purgatory. There's no waiting room. There's no transaction. Justice will be swift. Served, swift, justice will be sorrowful. All those who reject the gift of God, the Son of God, the way, the truth. The truth is that justice will be sorrowful. That our neighbors, our friends, our pals, our co-workers, if they are indifferent to the truth, if they reject the truth, if they deny the truth, they walk away from the truth, the truth is it will be sorrowful. No doubt. Zoom back out here at Festus and Agrippa having this conversation. Had they known the gravity of what they were discussing, had they known and been led to understand the gospel that Paul was trying to get across to them, they would have understood that it was true. They would have understood that there's no way it could be false. Face to face with the truth. Heads bowed, eyes closed. Church, how many of you could say, just by slipping up your hand, that you remember the day you came face to face with truth and you accepted it? You accepted it. You asked Jesus to save you. You came face to face with the truth and you accepted it. It's good. Hands down. How many of you could say, Brother Bryce, I know somebody that's come face to face with truth and they've rejected it. They've rejected it. They know it's true. They know it's true and they've rejected it. Don't raise your hand. You don't have to tell on anybody. But as I close in prayer, would you whisper their name?
But I've prayed for them already. They, they don't want to let... No, it's not what I asked. Would you pray for them? Because in these dark, dark days that we're living in, the truth is shining brighter and brighter and brighter. You have people asking questions now that never cared before. You have people looking into eternity now that never thought about eternity before. You have people losing their faith in the world they live in and they're looking for something to put their faith in. Will you be the Christian that brings them face to face with the truth like Paul did? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much again for the life of Paul. Thank you that as Christianity was put on trial there in Jerusalem and there in Rome, that there was a man who stood firm, that there was a man who simply kept reaffirming and reaffirming and reaffirming the gospel of Jesus Christ. And God, as we close, Lord, I pray that you help your church, help your people, help your children to not get caught up in the arguments and the fightings and the divisions and lose sight of the fact that we have the truth and that we have been called to deliver the truth in love. God, I pray that you give your people boldness to proclaim the truth, that you give people boldness to live the truth, that you give people boldness to witness and to invite. And God, help us see this church grow. Help us see your local New Testament light here in Rossville, Georgia. Be the church you called it to be. God, not because of us, but because of you. Lord, I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I'd like to see everyone back on Wednesday night at 645. Hopefully I see all of you sooner at Moe's from 4 to 8. Come eat us a burrito. Praise the Lord. Y'all have a good night.